0: Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. We're going to carry on in the middle of our For the Love series. It's a study in the book of John. We're doing this alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic Church. Uh, we're going to go right to John chapter 3 today. Uh, to do it completely, verse by verse, would probably take a little longer than all fall, but nonetheless, we're spending pretty much the whole fall in the book of John. This week, I'll be on John 3. Pastor Morgan, next week, will come in from Mosaic Austin and take us to John chapter 5. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. We'll be in John, again, 3, you're listening, John 3, verses 1 through 21. Here we go. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, or y'all, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you receive, believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond any of our thoughts or my words. Help us in believing we can have life in your name. That's the promise of the apostle John, the point of why he writes this book, and the reason why we're here in the rain today, and why you've brought us here. We can have life in your name. All of us here need to find life, real life in you, instead of in all the myriad of other things that we can define ourselves in, alternatives that are so pervasive, idols that promise life, but bring only death. So help us, bring us life today, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give a rather long introduction to a pretty simple message relatively. I'm sure you've all heard of the great and famous peacemaker, Mahatma Gandhi. But what you may not know is just how much of Gandhi's humanitarian ethic, basically the things he did, hinged on what he learned from the life and teaching of Jesus. Gandhi was an advisor to kings and queens. He was a friend to the celebrities of his day. And yet, strangely enough, he was very different. He never traveled by plane, always by train, and always third class. Someone once asked Gandhi, why do you travel third class with the peasants and the animals? And he said, because there's no fourth class. Gandhi was able to befriend the untouchables, to break barriers that weren't even in anyone's paradigm at the time. In the caste system, these people that were rejected as lesser than. He even adopted a young boy that had leprosy, something unheard of and dangerous and foolish. Now, I hope you can see that by by his example, he's echoing the life of Jesus in so many ways. But one of the saddest things about Gandhi is that though he followed the example of Jesus, he, according to his own testimony, never once considered becoming a Christian. And what's sadder than that is that when we find out the reasons why he claimed to have rejected Christianity... In his day, in his time, and how his criticism relates to the struggles that we have in our time, in our place. As Gandhi observed the lives of Christians in Europe that he interacted with, he noted that most of them lived lives of blind dogmatism, blatant racism, and lofty self-righteousness. He was once asked to leave a Christian worship service because he wasn't white, He was thrown off of a train once by Christians. He was regularly excluded from Christian businesses and restaurants. And he once remarked, the lives of Christians, quote, did not give me anything that the lives of other men and faiths failed to give. So it was impossible for me to regard Christianity as a perfect religion or the greatest of all religions. Now, if you're here and you're skeptical about Christianity. Maybe like Gandhi, you've uh, noticed the lives of Christians you're friends with around you and you've observed based off of them that there's reasons to appear skeptical. If that's you, I I just want to say in one sense, I really understand that perception. But one thing that Gandhi missed in all of his brilliance and one thing that you may miss, as brilliant as you undoubtedly probably are, is the point. The point of the Bible, the the reason Jesus came to earth. And I don't say this to insult anyone but to warn all of us that Jesus did not come to the earth to help good, moral, upright people get a little bit better at that. Jesus came to the earth To bring life to dead sinners. That's the point. Now look, when there's life that comes from that, there should be behavior change in the least. But Jesus said, I came to bring life. And life more abundantly. He said, it's not the well that need a doctor, but the sick. Growing up, I considered myself a pretty good kid. And I was pretty moral compared to the other people that I like to surround myself with, maybe by contrast to make myself feel better. But it wasn't until 14 years old, my born-again experience that we're going to talk about today, until then that I actually saw that my morality was meaningless apart from God's help. My born-again experience happened as a result of a campus ministry invading my life by the power of God in me becoming a new person by new birth. And it was then that I was able to understand the basic message of Christian salvation. So church, I want us today to not miss the point about salvation. We're going to examine Christian salvation, asking three questions as we unpack our passage. What is it? What does it do to us and how do we get it? Before we proceed any further, I have to confess something. Now this week as I was plowing through with my sermon preparations to you know, prepare what I was going to say, the Holy Spirit stopped me and said, Peter, you need to slow down. Before you prepare what you're going to say to them, you need to stop and listen to what I am speaking to to you because you're not hearing very well and you're not trusting me in this. Peter, you are trying to influence my people in my church, some of which that know me, some of which that will come to know me. You're trying to influence them to do things that I've called them to do, to sign up for events that I've called them to sign up for. And you need to trust me that I am going to birth a work in their hearts so that they can obey me in faith and in life. That's me articulating, in my words, what the Holy Spirit very clearly warned me about. And so here I am. I am wanting to, instead of simply influence you to the adventure of discipleship by honoring God and making disciples, I want to do my best to represent God's word and see what God does in surprising all of us. Now, I realize that as we talk about born-again stuff, as a preacher, it's a very strange razor's edge that I walk the line with. And I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Here's what I mean by this. There are people in this room right now that some of which are converted to Jesus, truly born-again, and others that are not. And even within this, those who are born-again, there are groups of people that are assured of that, And there are others that are self-condemning and doubt that and don't need to doubt that. And among the unconverted, there are people who know it. That's usually, in my experience, the lesser. But then there are also people, those of you who have experienced false conversions. You're not truly born again. You need to hear this sermon and turn to Jesus laying down all the other things in life that you've put before him because your life is really at stake and eternity is really knocking on your door. You need forgiveness and new birth and nothing less. But at the same time, in this very room, there's also genuine believers who are prone to doubt and self-condemnation. And you don't need to question whether or not you've been born again and your salvation. You need to have assurance in it. You need to rejoice in how God made you born again, whether or not you articulate it like born again or not. He's done it. You need to rejoice in that. You need to rejoice in what happened to you so that you can treasure Jesus more richly, grow in him more deeply, and tell of him more passionately. So what do I do? I run the risk of causing a true believer to doubt His or her salvation, and at the same time, I run the risk of bringing false assurance to an unbeliever. That's why I'm not joking around when I say, please pray for me. So here we go Christian salvation. God help us, give us ears to hear. What is Christian salvation? Let's read the first three verses of our passage. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. At this point, you would expect Jesus to be like, Man, I'm so pumped that a high-up dude knows my stuff here. Like, he can represent me. But no, he says, interrupts him. Truly, verse 3, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He then later goes on to say, cannot enter, to clarify. How many of y'all have heard the term born again before? Just show, raise a hand if you heard that term. Did you know that in almost every poll taken, most Americans would prefer to not have a born-again person as their neighbor. I, most Americans say, I do not want a born-again as my neighbor. And I think the perception of what a born-again is is probably the, the going reason. Most of the people that would probably take that survey understand a born-again person as someone who has been in an extreme deep pit. They've just, just run a, a reckless life And in reaction to their lavishness and how their life has been a total mess, impoverished by all sorts of nastiness, uh, they've reacted to that and become extra-uber-religious. That's the perception. And so in this perception, these people are now every bit as rigid in their rule-following as they once were rebellious in their rule-breaking. So the problem with this perception and... uh, the self-righteousness of these poor, uh, once-in-the-pit type of people is our text here does not allow for that perception. Nicodemus, who Jesus is talking to, is a Pharisee of the highest order. He is from the Jewish Sanhedrin. He is one of the squeaky clean people with no discernible past that he's running from in his rule following. He is rich. He's not poor. He doesn't need uh, more moral structure. He's not broken according to the eyes of anyone. He's put together well. And Jesus says to this guy, it's not enough. You need to be born again. Morgan Stevens from Mosaic Austin says that the call to be born again isn't a call to more morality. It's a challenge to more morality. Listen, if more morality can help us, then Jesus would not say, you must be born again. The other thing that's interesting about how he leads with his response to Nicodemus is he says, truly, truly, I say to you, You must be born again. He says this three times in our passage truly, truly, I say to you. Now, the emphasis of the double truly is uh, another teaching, but let's just say it's very important. Now, when he says, I say to you, that's also extremely important. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people would hear from God. What a gift to be able to hear the word of God! Let's not take it for granted. And the people that were assigned to bring the message of God, the prophets who would perform miracles, would come and say, thus says the Lord. And so now, Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying, look, I'm a prophet, and thus says the Lord. He's saying, I am God. And truly, I say to you, unless this squeaky clean, moralistic man becomes born again. You cannot have any hope of life with me. Think about this. Whether you consider yourself the best of the the moralistic, liberal, or conservative, every person in our culture as well, our default mode is that we tend to try to find salvation, oneness, oneness, we try to find our best life. We try to find the essence of why we're here and accomplish good things, right? Salvation, we try to find it by some sort of works that we do. Maybe it's more humanitarianism, more patriotism, more environmentalism, more traditionalism. We all try to find salvation by some sort of works that we perform or align with, and Jesus has come here to blow this completely up. He's saying to Nicodemus, you may consider yourself a good and moral person. Maybe you, like Nacho Libre, can say, I am, I am a real religious man. But there's no hope for you. You can't do enough. Anyone come here to be encouraged today? You can't do enough. That's what Jesus is saying. This man is on the top of all religion. And if Nicodemus can't save himself, then no Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, or vegan even (laughs) can save themselves through the strictest of all adherence to salvation as we know it. You need to know that every worldview or system of thought has its own, what I'm calling, salvation mechanism. We save ourselves through this thing. Salvation mechanism. Islam says that salvation is working to obey the five pillars of Islam and just try your best. Hinduism says that salvation is working to escape your past. Buddhism is, is working to escape everything. Uh, atheism uh, is working. Salvation is working to escape religion and all its effects. Modern Americanism is working salvation by working to become whatever you can try to be. Hashtag you are special. Hashtag you do you. Manifest destiny. We try to find salvation by all the things that we do. And so listen, as people from whatever background we're from, whether we can articulate and be self-aware or not, which is rare, and that's okay, When we go to the Bible, we tend to look at the Bible and interpret it through the lens of our salvation mechanism. And even you, you might just read the Bible in hopes that the characters and stories in the Bible inspire you to greatness and give you encouragement to, in essence, improve your life and save yourself. But if you read the Bible through this lens, I'm just going to tell you, it gets really bleak really fast. You find out soon enough that Abraham, the father of the faith, is, he's got a lying and polygamy issue he's dealing with. Uh, Noah is a drunk. Jacob is a deceiver. Samson is a perverted narcissist. It's not looking good so far. David, he's an adulterer and a murderer. And if you're looking at the Bible to find a good list of people and human behaviors to replicate, you will be offended fast. And even more than this, if you're looking to Jesus to improve your life, you should be most offended. Because Jesus, according to this passage and according to all of this stuff in here, he does not want to improve your life. Jesus will not, and does not want to improve your life. He wants to give you a new life. Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants you to receive his life. He wants you to be a part of his family through the new birth that only he can bring about. And Christianity is utterly and categorically different than everything else all other worldviews are religious or non-religious mechanisms to try to achieve salvation but christianity is the good news about how salvation comes to us it's achieved by jesus for us And I don't say all of these comparison things to boast and okay, we're better than others. No, the point is very much the opposite. I'm worse. Jesus said to a prostitute, and of her, he who is forgiven much loves much. And that's me. That's why I hope that the, the, the essence of how much I've been forgiven plays out in my jealousy Redeemed jealousy to represent Jesus and no one else. There is none beside him. And he's not just great, he's God. Consider this. This is actually very certain. Let's go back to Nicodemus takes a huge risk. Now, he might have come by night, but he still came to Jesus. He says, Rabbi. He's showing deference and respect to te- a teacher, even though Nicodemus is the one who like, had all the, the, the doctorate in Judaism. Jesus was untrained, and he's calling Jesus, sign of deference, teacher. He says, I know you're from God. He's acknowledging his miracles. I'm afraid that if this were me, I, and I notice someone like, oh man, this dude here knows that Jesus is legit, right? He's the teacher. He's got it all. He's the one who knows everything. And he knows that Jesus is the one who performs the miracles and no one else compares to Jesus. I might wrongly look at this man and be like, dude, yeah, you got it. Let me give you a sticker. We can be friends now and like, let's go evangelize together. And that would be great. But Jesus says in all of your acknowledging about who I am, You don't just need to know that I perform miracles. You need something deeply inside you. John Piper is a pastor in Minnesota. Uh, He says this about this passage, about Jesus' abrupt response to Nicodemus. He says, What happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. So do you hunger for the supernatural out there? To see signs and wonders and people healed miraculously, people raised from the dead? I really hope you do. Not desiring miracles, I don't see how that's godly at all. But if we desire miracles, the greatest miracle is that God alone can regenerate a dead heart and give new birth. It's not enough to see what God is doing out there. Do you know that even the demons understand that Jesus is a miracle worker? And he is the son of God? That's not enough. We need to be born of him. And when we're born of him, then we can look at miracles and seek for miracles and, and take risks to prophesy and lay our hands on dead people to align ourselves with God and to seek out his glory being exalted in how he conceives and brings about new birth. We need to be careful in this. What is Christian salvation? It's new birth. Number two, what does it do to us? Thank you for asking. New birth does two things. It's a two-in-one deal here. New birth brings new life. Everyone say new life. life. And it brings new family. Everyone say new new family. First, new life. Why do I need new life? It's a simple answer. It's because I'm dead. And let's be careful to understand this. John 3.16, we don't know if it's Jesus' words that he's continuing on or John's words, but either way, it's super important. John 3.16 might be the most famous verse in the Bible, but without the two following verses that come after it, The context for why we're perishing and the condemnation that we already face by God's judgment because of our sin makes it to which we don't understand that we won't treasure rightly what he alone gave. We're dead. That's why we need new birth, new life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish But have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. For he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. The reason that we need new life is because we're dead. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sin and transgression. In other words, we're condemned already. Apparently, Jesus has a clear category in his mind for the living dead because he knew that Nicodemus wasn't actually dead physically. Nicodemus could have said, look, I'm not dead. I don't need to be born. Jesus is clearly talking about a category of death that plays out first in the spiritual and in the level of the soul and eventually leads to death in the body. And Jesus is saying, you need new life at the deepest level. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need a new DNA, a new life, new birth. Let me illustrate it in this way I, like all of us, was born very unique. Um, there is a, there's an inverse relationship to my energy level and my, uh, my melanin level. Okay? I'm very, very unique. God made me different. Uh, I can put it like this. I might be pale-skinned in complexion, but I'm also extra in personality disposition. I'm different. Now, what would it take, Thad, can you stand up? What would it take for me to look and act like this man Thaddeus here with all of his super-calculated disposition, if you know Th- Thaddeus, not me, with his beautiful melanin-rich skin, his perfect waist, he doesn't even wear a wave cap, but don't get jealous, don't, get, don't hate on him. What would it take for me to look and act like this man? I would need new DNA. I would need a new father to put new life in me. Thank you, Thaddeus. <laughs> and I told him it wouldn't be uncomfortable. <laughs> I would need a new birth. I would need a miracle. It would take new life from God, and that's the point. When we receive new birth, it's life from the dead. Jeremiah 13, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us, no matter how good you consider yourself, you have a spiritual genetic code that's morally corrupt and spiritually dead and you need new life. New birth alone brings new life. And also it brings new family. When we're born again, or when we're born, we're born into a family, right? This is what, Paul says in Ephesians 2.19, he says, we are members of God's household. The word for household used is, it was a sacred Greek word that was only supposed to be used in the context of blood relation. And so when Paul used that word, it was controversial. Listen, if we're born again, we have the DNA of the Father by the blood of the Son. And all of the lesser blood relations and lesser things with which we could define ourselves are subjugated to this new birth that is greater. Now, I need to illustrate this with my relationship with people different than me in some ways, and yet at the core, the same in this new birth has taught me so much about the power of this. Fifteen years ago, when I was in college, as we were planning the campus ministry that became this church, I was roommates with a man named Barrick. His, his wife, uh, Tiffany, led worship here for 10 years until they moved to El Paso, and I'm still grieving, but they're coming back real soon. Uh, now, Barrick and I, the first few years living together, we had a f- several moments where we realized, man, we might be a little different But every time we worked through the political conversations, anything that we went through, we realized maybe we're different and maybe we don't resolve every conversation in total agreement, but there's something about us that we have in common more that makes us more alike. In some ways, we'll never be the same. I'll give you one example. It was 1 a.m. one night. Barrick wakes me up, shakes me, says, Get up, come downstairs. I had no idea what was going on, but with his insistence, I ran downstairs. I heard sirens. I opened the front door, and I see lights, and my first thought is, the house is burning down. Thank you, Jesus. Barrick saved my life. <laughs> and then I look, and a, the neighbor right next to us is getting arrested. Well, there was no cop. There was no f- <laughs> fire department. It was cops. He's getting arrested. And then Barrick is pulling chairs out to the front. <laughs> I almost thought, like, dude, he's like, got, like, popcorn. What is happening? I'm like, dude, i got to sneak inside and pretend like I didn't see anything. That's what I do. That's where I come from. It's like, no, 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 no. Where I come from, we sit and pull up a chair and we watch this. We never resolved that. We never had agreement about this. But listen, over the last 15 years, through the pains of life, through the difficulties of what it means to be a father and a husband, we had more unity in this new birth, in the family to which we belong, where others that share these lesser things with us, some of which do not belong, that it sustained my faith in my very life. Every group tries to build loyalty and identity around some weaker thing, class, nationality, gender, race, These things aren't unimportant. God gave you the skin color he gave you for a reason. He gave you the gender he gave you for a reason. It says in Acts 18 that he has called us to live in certain places and boundaries so that we would cry out to him and seek him and find him. And we would actually draw others uniquely to him that other people couldn't. It's not unimportant. But when you're born again, you're born into a whole new identity, into a whole new family household. What is salvation? It's new birth. What does it do to us? It gives us new life and a new family. And finally, how do we get it? How do we receive the new birth? How do we become Christians? Jesus says twice here, be born again using passive voice. The first time new birth is mentioned in the Bible is just the prologue of the same book. And it mentions a, an operative person involved. To all, verse 12, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. He, he gave adoption paperwork. These people were born, verse 13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how do we get this new birth? The answer is God causes the new birth. Now, it might be unpleasant for some of you to consider the absolute free will of God. He can do what he wants. In comparison, we are hopeless, lifeless spiritually. We can't change our own status any more than a leopard can change into a kangaroo. We are totally dependent on God. And that word dependent is like, again, an American cuss word. I don't like that word. It makes me feel uncomfortable. God causes new birth. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, not according to your morality, your goodness, your good choices, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again dependence on God is what new birth is all about. But listen, dependence on God is what all birth is about when you think about it, right? No one in here can say, you know, I, I, my first birth, it was hard, but I persevered. You know, I got kind of stuck around the, the, this one part, but I just, I saw the light and I just kept moving. And you know, uh, I'd like to thank my mom and my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No one can say that. No one, can, no one can boast like that, like celebrities give their little piddly things to God. God did everything. We're totally dependent on him. God causes the new birth. Now, I watched the birth of my three daughters, and I know the the same process played out with the birth of my son to his birth mother. And here's the thing. For all of them and for all of us, being born was not something we did or we chose as much as it was something that happened to us, not through our own effort or our own pain or our own trauma, but that of another. And Nicodemus probably understood this reality way more when, when Jesus references birth. Nicodemus was there before painkillers and EMS trips if the birth went wrong and And he was there before we understood germ theory. So he knew that when we talk about birth, this is something that comes about through the life and pain and trauma and sometimes death of another person who brings this life about. Unless you think I might be going a little too far in this, Jesus himself clarifies this. John 16, he says, A little while you'll see me no more, and then you will see me. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy of having a new child born into a world, in the world. Jesus only ever uses this word, "The hour has come," elsewhere in, in the Bible, when he's talking about going to the cross to die for our sin, and what he's saying to Nicodemus and to us? is that the hour that I am giving birth, I am mothering, I am conceiving, I am fathering, I am bringing about life. Colossians 1, I am becoming the first fruits of a new creation, the preeminator, the beginner of new life and new birth. Until that hour, there's anguish. He is becoming our life. Now, I want to close with this question. It's an important question. How do we know that we have that? Knowing that the the problem with deception is one does not know when one is deceived. That's why it's deception. How do we know? Well, John, who wrote this book, had a lot of fruit in the church, and he wrote a letter towards the end of his life to answer the question, to give a diagnostic, like, how do we really know if we're true believers and we've been born of God? knowing that we are prone to self-deception. He says this in 1 John 1, or First John 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because he tries harder. No, because God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Church, don't miss that because. Know that this is a diagnostic, but don't confuse the diagnostic with the cure. If you see right now based on the seeing the fruit of your life and maybe the internal witness of the Holy Spirit showing you you don't have this yet I beg you don't go try to create new fruit from the same root Apple trees cannot produce pecans You mustn't try to change your behavior you must be born again. Would you pray with me?